This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hello, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is Amanda Moses. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Bronwyn. Amanda is a psychologist and director of Amanda Moses Psychology, which deals with everything early career. You might know Amanda from previous episodes. She's a returned guest and I think you guys really like her because she always gets a lot of listens on her episodes, (laughs) (laughs) much to Amanda's embarrassment. Very much embarrassed, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. So today we've got Amanda on for a really important topic. I'm not allowed to say I'm excited anymore about episodes because I think I was doing it every episode, but I'm genuinely excited about this topic. We're going to be talking about ethical internships, ethical workplaces, ethical placements. I'm very excited for this too, Bronwyn. There is very little that gets me fired up like this topic. So very much looking forward to unpacking it with you today. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to it too. We're going to have a look at internships. So that is for provisional psychologists, those who are doing the four plus two, five plus one pathway. Then we're going to have a look at master's placements. So these are students doing, say, the clinical master's program or the other programs that aren't clinical. There's not many of them around these days. And then we're going to have a look at ethical workplaces for registered psychs. So these psychs are the ones who have their general registration and then maybe in their first year of practice. We're going to have a look at things like fair pay, caseloads, contractor versus employment arrangements, the level of support you should be receiving, and what it actually looks like to be in an ethical workplace internship placement. Sound good, Amanda? Sounds fab. Let's start then with internships. So Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but we are talking about the five plus one internship and the four plus two, right? Yeah, four by two and five by one. Yeah. Um, four by two, of course, has been, uh, it's been phased out, but we still have many four by twos that are still completing uh, that internship program. Yeah. So the plus one year for the five plus one students is 1500 hours and for the four by two, it's 3000 hours. So this is one to two years of practice outside of the university setting, but it's highly regulated and controlled by the psychology board. What are some of the issues that folks pursuing the internship pathway can face, Amanda? There are many. Um, I think in my experience, because I have been working really closely with provisional and early career psychologists for the last, um, you know, kind of year or more, I noticed a bit of a trend regarding how some of these provisional psychologists particularly were being treated in workplaces that really struck me as quite unsafe, unethical, quite concerning. Um, And I started wondering why is nobody talking about this or am I the only one that is concerned about this? Um, The amount of people I had coming to me telling me about unsafe practices in their workplace, such as having uh, ridiculously high caseloads, like sometimes seeing seven clients per day, then being expected to do admin in their own unpaid time, seeing really complex clients without any support or adequate supervision to do this, um, sometimes receiving such abysmal pay and sometimes no pay, really disturbing unethical practices. And I'm not saying that that is 
every practice. There are many practices that uh, do hire provisionals and do it well. But unfortunately, I'm hearing of just too many places that aren't. Um, so much so that I felt the need to be talking about this issue quite actively now for a long time. So you feel like it's not being more widely recognised um, in the psychology profession? No, and I think if it is, um, it sounds like people are either they're turning a blind eye towards it or they are just accepting that this is the way it is because these are the way, this is the way that things have always been done, which I just don't agree with. Yeah, and that's something that I've heard actually. So I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, all placements were unpaid or that it was more commonplace, certainly. And so now I think there can be a kind of inherited attitude that that's acceptable when really it actually wasn't acceptable back then either. It really wasn't. And I think back to my days being a provisional, um, you know, dating back, God, I don't know, 12 years or more ago. That's correct. You, it was very, very hard to find an internship and let alone find one that paid. It was just non-existent. So the very few internships that were available were just naturally going to be unpaid. You were lucky to be there and lucky to have this opportunity. And so I think what has manifested is that while now um, most provisionals are very lucky to be compensated, I think that the point I want to highlight is maybe that lucky part that when they're in these paid placements, they're made to feel as if, oh, you know, well, at least you're getting paid or I'm doing you a favor by hiring you. And this is actually um, perhaps not beneficial for me as the employer and really made to feel like uh, they're somehow owing something perhaps to that employer for having them there. Yeah, no, I completely felt like that as a provisional psych. I was like, what a privilege to be here. Gosh, they selected me out of heaps of people who applied. I need to make sure that I work extremely hard. I'm going to meet that six-hour KPI and do everything on top. No, it's okay if I work over hours and you don't pay me. So it's a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. Exactly. I think I definitely felt the same. And it's it's almost funny now looking back. Um, now I suppose I can laugh at it because it's been over a decade. But I remember being treated so poorly in this internship I was working at. I was in a private practice and treated so poorly and even made to do things like uh, wash dishes and vacuum as part of my unpaid placement. And I'm, I look back now thinking like the fact that firstly, I was treated so poorly and then made to do these other ridiculous duties, but that I wasn't even getting paid for it. Like it, it blows my mind. And that would just it wouldn't play out like that today. But unfortunately, what is paying out is, yes, people are getting paid, but they're still getting treated poorly. It's just abysmal when I hear that. I'm like, wow, that's so inadequate. And the fact that many of us have these stories about our internships that are manifestly inadequate in one or more ways, it, I believe it's unacceptable. I believe it's unacceptable too, and I would love to see something change in this space. Yeah. So let's unpack, I guess, we started off with pay, but would it be fair to say, Amanda, that sometimes, even though provisionals are being paid in their internship, sometimes it's not adequate pay? 
Yes, I think that is mostly fair to say. Um, now, pay will range so ver- like so greatly depending on what workplace you're in and what type of psychological work you are doing as an intern. Um, but I do see pays as low as uh, $27 an hour. Um, and I suppose if you're living in any type of, you know, metropolitan city, um, that is really hard to sustain uh, yourself on, given that you also then have to pay for supervision costs, professional development, um, and a whole host of other things included in completing an internship. So therefore, many provisionals are really struggling financially, understandably, with with a wage like that. So I always kind of recommend that even though there is that award wage that employers are looking at to guide them, I don't think that, I mean, again, I would say this is just a guide, really reflect on a few things like how much are you charging this provisional psychologist out for? And let's think about that and, and be fair and make sure they're still compensated fairly. Like, if you're comfortable charging a provisional psych out for one fifty, but then char- paying them twenty seven dollars an hour, for me it just doesn't really quite add up. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of this same feeling amongst provisional psychs. I see a lot on the social media them questioning what is a fair pay? Am I being paid fairly? And I think it's because of this discomfort with being like, hey, this actually isn't enough for me to live on. Yeah, and I think probably that sustained attitude of you know, you should be lucky to be here and have this opportunity. Are we able to give any numbers around annual salary? To be honest, in my my experience, it just varies so greatly. Um, I've seen things kind of as low as maybe 50 or 60, all the way up to like 100 would be ridiculously high. Yes, yeah. <laughs> depending on where you, depending on where you live, but I, I, it just does vary so greatly depending on the setting. Like, is it private practice? Is it a private or kind of public? You know, kind of community setting? Is it NDIS work? And it it really just does change depending on that. But in general, what I'm seeing is the the award wage is somewhere around. I believe it's around 28 to 30 an hour. I can't remember exactly. So it's quite low and many employers are fair and will pay above that, uh, but some won't and some will pay that or sometimes pay below that. And I think it's really important to contextualise it, like you say, in the type of work you're doing and what you're being charged out at as well. Perhaps maybe a recommendation around this would be seek out people who are in your industry or in your line of work and see how much they are being paid? Yeah, that is a good idea. And I think you also need to consider things like some internships will include in their hourly wage um, supervision, yes, uh, professional development and other things that kind of come into their salary package, which can be can relieve that burden a little bit for provisional. So like, for example, you're getting paid $30 an hour, but all your supervision costs were covered, all your professional development costs were covered. Perhaps that might be more comfortable for some. Whereas if you're getting paid, say, 30 an hour or 28 an hour, but you still have to fork out for supervision, professional development, then that's obviously a big difference. So I always tell people when you're seeking employment and you're seeking internships, really get clear on not just what they're paying you, but what does it include? Um, Am I going to get supervision allowances with this? Am I going to get, you know, a PD budget? Uh, What else am I going to get within that kind of salary? 
Absolutely. And one thing I would add to that as well is really read your contracts because when I was a provisional psych doing my five plus one internship, it is true that supervision was included in my package, but I had a payback contract that said that I had to work with the organization for two years post-registration. Otherwise, I would have to pay back all of that supervision. The workplace was way too toxic for me to work there two years post-registration. And so I ended up paying back about $4,000, $5,000, like in a lump sum, which I didn't have lying around listeners. And so no, that was really difficult. That's quite mind boggling. And I have heard of that. That still happens. I yeah. have heard of that clause in the contract and I, I struggle to comprehend it um, just because I, I, I sense that if a company is taking on a provisional psych, there is going to be financial benefit to them or they wouldn't hire them. Uh, so even if they're p- providing supervision, it's in their interest to do so because it also protects their business and also ensures that their business is operating yeah. you know, with integrity. And so I don't really get that. To be honest, I don't know if that's a fair clause. Yeah, no, I my gut feeling is that it's not a fair clause. It certainly didn't feel fair. It also felt like having the benefit of hindsight that I was contributing a lot to the organization as well. Mm. Yeah. Of course um, you were. Yeah. And I guess just another thing to make listeners aware of, and this is, I'm really excited about this, but previously, Amanda, did you know that it was illegal to actually talk about or share your salary with your coworkers? So employers would often stipulate in the contract that you we're not allowed to share your salary with other co-workers. And now I can't remember if it was a ruling about six, it was about six months ago. You're not allowed to have that line in an employee contract, which is fantastic. So you can talk about your salary with your colleagues and you can be like, how much are you earning? I'm earning this. Oh, you're earning 5,000 more than me. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why that is. And that can be used to assist with negotiations. And that was what employers didn't want, which is what they have that. They didn't want people to understand that people were earning different things. But it's something that I would highly encourage. I know it's a bit taboo socially to ask about salary, but hey, if you're looking for information, I don't know how else you would get it except for telepathy. Absolutely. That is so interesting. I did not know that. I do know historically that, yes, I've had employers say you're not allowed to discuss your wage or your salary um, with anyone within that company. Uh, so that is really interesting. I yes. didn't realize that. Yeah, talk about it. Mm. Yeah, I have even considered popping up on like the Facebook or something. It's like share your salary, like because it's like something that we don't talk about enough and would probably discover if we all shared our salary that we are being dramatically underpaid as a whole, particularly internship folks. Absolutely. I think it's, it's again, as you said, it's because money is such a taboo topic. Yeah. It feels hard to talk about. It feels hard to question someone, you know, on what you're earning. It, it almost is like socially inappropriate, perhaps. Mm. But, you know, with that as well, I'm always like, who is that serving? So if it's socially inappropriate and you internalize that, that means that you don't talk about your salary with your employer. Benefits them. You're not asking for any changes to your employment, um, but mm. it doesn't benefit you. Yeah, it doesn't benefit you. Mm, Things to think about, listeners. Okay, let's move on to caseloads. What have you seen, Amanda? As high as seven a day, which is quite scary. Um, I think even as like a senior psychologist, I would never think it's healthy to see that many per day, five days or six days a week. It's a recipe for burnout. Um, And that really worries me that, 
private practices or organisations are, are expecting this from provisional psychs who are straight out of university, who are still learning the ropes, who are still developing their competency to practice. They are not in a position to be seeing this many clients per day because they naturally need more time to case formulate, to treatment plan, to research about the presentations they're seeing, uh, to case note, to do all of those things that might come a little bit automatically to us when we're later in our career. And so seven clients per day is just not allowing time to do all the work that goes into having a very effective therapy session. And so it's not just about the risk to the provisional, though it is about the risk to the provisional. It's also about the risk to the community and the vulnerable members of our community that are seeing provisionals who are under these high pressure situations. And what could the care look like in that scenario when they're not really able to adequately prepare for a session? I don't think that anyone's going to be at their best seeing seven a day and therefore the treatment could not be at its best and therefore the client is not going to get the most effective treatment, which is a concern. I agree. It's risky for the provisional psychologist. It's risky for the community. And I'd say it's even risky for the standing of the profession because it's like we don't want people going out there potentially providing ineffective treatments to clients because they simply don't have enough time to prepare and research the presentations. That's bad. It's terrible. Um, And I think, you know, given that we've got a workforce shortage and we're in crisis mode now, we need more psychologists. Uh, The fact that our next generation of psychologists are being put in these compromising positions really worries me. It worries me for the standing of our profession and where that is going to lead in terms of, you know, what are the, what is it going to look like in 10 years for us? You know, if we're burning out these poor little early career psychs before they even get going, um, where are they going to be? Where what What is our profession going to look like if we continue like this? Exactly. Yeah. And we're going to have a lot of burnt out psychs or a lot of people leaving the profession. And then that's going to contribute more to the workforce shortage. So yeah. Amanda, what does a, a good caseload look like for a provisional psych during that internship? I would say four clients per day, four days per week um, with enough time. So if we're thinking of a full-time uh, provisional psych. I'm, that's what I mean. Four clients per day, four four days per week, um, and then having a day where it would just purely be admin or professional development. They've obviously got the other hours on the other days to do admin or treatment planning. If you think about the internship guidelines that ARPA themselves have set out, they've stipulated that a internship, a full time one, is thirty five hours per week, whereby. minimum is expected that it's client-facing, and then the other 60% is expected that that would be client-related. So even APRA, uh, without saying it directly, are are more or less saying that they're only really anticipating someone would spend 40% of their full-time working week doing client-facing activities, which translates to I believe if you kind of work it out for 35 hours, it's around 14 hours. I could be wrong. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, 14 hours and then 21 hours of client-related. But what I see is usually kind of the reverse, but but actually a lot more than the reverse. People are seeing six or seven a day and, um, you know, then you have a lunch break. You don't have admin um, and you're doing your admin in your own time, which is unpaid. So four a day, four days a week, 
would be my recommendation with a day of admin, professional development, um, and this should all be paid time. They shouldn't be doing admin in their own unpaid time. Sounds fantastic. I completely agree. What do you do if you are doing admin in your own time? This might be jumping the gun, but, you know, just putting it out there. I think if it's um, around the client, then it's probably something I would highlight with my employer. The problem is as many provisionals don't feel safe to do that because there is a there's an inherent power imbalance when you're in these situations. The the employers and the principal uh, supervisors and psychologists are obviously in a unique position of power. So many provisionals, while they might know and recognize that this doesn't feel good, it feels like I'm maybe doing too much or doing too much in my own unpaid time. They don't know how to address this in a way that feels safe without risking their internship so where it's safe to do so I would tell you to directly address it with your employer if it doesn't feel safe to do that I would be making sure that you're you're speaking to your supervisor who is external from the workplace and if you don't have one seek one out seek out a secondary supervisor who doesn't exist within your workplace and that way you can get some objective guidance and the AAPI of course um, we're always here to support psychologists and early career psychologists so if there's any type of ethical conundrum um, you're questioning uh, if you are a member of the AAPI you of course can reach out and there is member services that will support you. Yeah so you're not alone I guess is what we're saying so there are many things that you can do and many places you can turn to. One of them is AAPI. You can also turn to your supervisor, another trusted psychologist, even outside of that. You could even ask on social media and be like, hey, does anybody have time for a chat about this? Just check out your situation. And if you've got that gut feeling that, look, something's not right here. I'm doing like an hour of admin reliably, like every day or every few days, and it's unpaid. That's not okay. Anything else that you wanted to talk about with internships? Any red flags or indications that we've got an unfair workplace here? I think, I mean, pay is a big one. So is employees making them feel like they're doing a favour. They're doing you a favour by hiring you. That's always a red flag for me. The high caseloads is is an obvious one, but I should also mention that even with uh, lower caseloads, you really want to ensure that your caseload isn't too complex. So the clients you're seeing uh, don't have significantly complex presentations. And if they do, that you've got adequate support uh, kind of through your employer. Um, and that might look like through supervision and training to assist you in assisting those clients. So if we're seeing really complex clients, like maybe someone that has a presentation of schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder or bipolar or something as such, do you actually have the adequate support and supervision and training in place to help you help those clients? And so I'd be looking at that too, because usually, um, and though it doesn't always play out this way, provisional psychologists should really only be seeing mild to moderate presentations while they're building their skills and competency. And if they're seeing those more complex presentations, if they are, they need to be really well supported. Yes, definitely. So like 
like you said, um, psychotic disorders, I would add active suicidal behavior, you need to be very closely supported. And I just wanted to add as well that a lot of provisionals I've heard will blame themselves and be like, oh, it's a problem because I'm not competent enough. Like I'm the problem here. It's like, no, you're the student. Like we don't expect you to know everything and it's a really good skill to be able to recognize like, hey, this is outside my scope of competence. That's okay. That means you need more support, not that you're inadequate. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think sometimes, um, unfortunately, uh, what has kind of transpired is that provisionals who recognize that and maybe address that with their employers will be faced with, well, you know, you're a psychologist, you've got the skills, you're a provisional psychologist, you should know how you should be learning how to deal with this presentation, as opposed to just providing the adequate support and supervision necessary. Yeah, I've had that as well. They've directly said to me, well, when are you going to learn? And it's like, in hindsight now, it's like not during my first year of practice. So <laughs> yeah, not during your first year. Yeah. And, and if you were like, Please provide me the support. Exactly. So. so it's like, don't say like, okay, well, when are you going to learn? Okay, do it, but then provide nothing extra. It's like, it should be recognized. This is a complex case. Provide me with the additional mm. support. I agree. I don't think uni necessarily equips you to go straight into the workforce and work with complex presentations. Um, you're still very much a novice kind of psychologist. You're still learning the ropes. I don't think many have enough skills at that point post-university to be seeing challenging and complex presentations. Yeah, so I guess just to make it a bit more specific to listeners, would we be talking about support in terms of like help with planning every session or a debrief after every session or every two sessions or would that be like an additional hour of support with treatment planning? It's, it's obviously got to be balanced within the kind of demands of that organisation too. I would say if you're having a if you're seeing a complex client or seeing many complex clients, I would expect that there would be more regular supervision with an experienced clinician um, or that your and or your employer might be assisting you by ways of funding uh, professional development that is targeted at working with that presentation. So perhaps it's not about them having to spend an extra, you know, several hours a day working with you, but it's actually saying that, okay, I recognize that this in turn is seen quite complex presentations. Maybe they need to touch base with me more regularly. Maybe instead of once a week, it's twice a week. Maybe I'm also funding some professional development for them to make sure that they feel equipped to deal with this. Yeah, totally. So Amanda, I guess another point to talk about with listeners is about contractor versus employment arrangements. So for the internship, my understanding is that you cannot be a contractor. That means you cannot be paid by the client that you see. You cannot be paid on the hour like that. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and I think what I see is that mostly this is done done well. Uh, most businesses and practices understand that. You're not allowed to contract provisionals. They do need to be employed, even if it's just casually. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes, and I'm not sure if it's a matter of miscommunication and employers not recognizing this, but what I see sometimes is that uh, provisionals are in a position where they're technically employed. They're, they're employed casually. Maybe they're getting their super and things like that. But they're reporting to me that they're only getting paid per client. And if the client doesn't show up, they don't get paid. 
And I'm trying to explain to them that that isn't, in essence, casual employment. That is a contractor arrangement disguised by casual employment, because if it's true casual employment, it's you can't charge and pay per client, you pay per shift. Mm. Um, and there are minimum shifts that you're expected to engage in. I believe the, the bare minimum is three hours. Yep. So you're on site at work. Uh, you need to be paid for the time you're there. So if you've been scheduled six clients between nine and five, uh, two in the middle don't show up, I'd expect that you still need to pay, be paid for that eight-hour day. Yes. Um, as opposed to only being paid now for four hours because two didn't show up. You were on site for eight hours. They were your, That was your scheduled shift time. That's what you need to be paid. Yes, absolutely. And listeners, if you are unsure about this, I'm going to chuck a link to the Fair Work website in the show notes. Fair Work is your friend. You can talk to them via chat functions. You can submit an inquiry and you can tell them about your workplace. You can also contact AIPI and ask them about it and you'll get help. And they're really good as well. Harp is great mm. uh, with this and they do have um, they do have great support for members. So if you are a member, it's definitely someone somewhere you can reach out to. Totally. Should we move on to master's placements, Amanda? Let's do it. Okay. Tell me about it. This is a topic you're really passionate about. What's the problem with master's placements? Go for it. Oh, this stresses me out, Bronwyn. I, so what is happening across the board? Um, as many people know, but again, I don't know why no one's talking about this or not talking about it enough, but we have master's students doing, say, you know, clinical master's, ed and dev, or one of the other relevant areas of pathways to endorsement. You have them coming into these really demanding programs, then being sent out on unpaid placements, uh, which you have to complete how many hours is it, Bronwyn, you know? Well, for my placements, I need to complete, I think, 300 hours. It's about 475 hours total, and I think 150 of those are direct client hours. It's a chunk. It is a chunk because I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the transi transitional program, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so this is the bridging program yeah. that I'm doing. Yeah, so I think it's about double that for a regular <gasps> master's. My goodness. Yes, yeah. So, um, and I'm also hearing um, that there are some universities, I will not name names, but there are some universities, and I've cited these contracts myself, um, that are asking prospective master's students to sign a document to say that if they are accepted into the program, they will not work more than nine hours per week. And some are saying, uh, without a contract, you are not allowed to work or we don't recommend you work. And so I'm trying to understand, and my mind is is quite like I'm quite boggled with all this because firstly if you're expecting someone to come into a program like the masters and and do it full time and do it in a really demanding way and also be sent out to unpaid placements but then not be allowed to work where are they where are they expecting these students to get money from to fund themselves? Because we all know, um, you know, kind of the Oz study. Is it still called that? Yes. I'm thinking of, yeah, okay. Oz study doesn't pay very much, no. right? Um, you're not getting paid a livable, definitely not getting paid anywhere near a livable amount on Oz study. So how are they expecting them to actually fund this? And that leads me to the only conclusion that are they 
only expecting uh, students who are wealthy to, to apply for this because who else could afford to do that? I think I think that's it. That must be what is happening because otherwise are they asking landlords like, hey, can you give our students free rent for the year or are they asking the banks mm. to put people's mortgages on hold for the year and then the landlords yeah. and banks, you know, we know how acquiescing they are to those sorts of requests and they'll be like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll let you live, live for free for the yeah. next two years. <laughs> That's how we roll. <laughs> yeah. So politely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, I had an unturned. I had an unpaid placement during my fifth year of study at university and I was on Centrelink and I remember distinctly saying to my placement coordinator, I was like, I'm having trouble like paying my rent. This is hard for me. I can't. I can't do this. This is quite hard. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, I agree. Like, I just think it reduces the diversity in our profession, but there must be only people who are supported or have that capacity to be able to not work or are doing it really, really tough. Exactly. And I think that that is an issue in itself, isn't it? Because if that is the case, even if it's unintentional, it does reduce the diversity in our profession. It means that naturally people that get accepted and are able to accept an offer like that um, must be people who can afford that, which means they must be wealthier. And yes, this does reduce diversity. And also we're thinking again, let's go back to the workforce shortage and Mm. the fact that we are in crisis here. Why are we making this so hard for people to get to the end? Yeah. Right? All we want to do is help people. Uh, Yes. Why are they making this so hard? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I guess something I want to point out around this is that even people who are undergoing an apprenticeship, they get paid. It's not as much. It's, you know, just about minimum wage, but they are students. They are learners. They are not fully qualified in their technical area of skill, but they get paid. I view it as equivalent, actually, that we should get paid as well for placements. What do you think, Amanda? I agree. I think that that would actually make a lot of sense. And um, I've been having a lot of discussion about this topic online uh, on my LinkedIn account um, with many other psychologists. And I think while most people definitely agree that this should and can be something that is government funded, I also don't want to take away from the issue that I think the business owners are also equally responsible. Like, yes, the government, I'd love you to do more, but I'd also like the business owners to do more and not put their hands up and and make this an issue about the government. Um, Because I've had a few employers say, well, I, I just can't, and I just can't afford to pay these placement students. And it just leaves me wondering, if you can't afford to pay these placement students, then why are you comfortable to charge um, a dollar figure for them. It would be one thing if they were coming in and they weren't benefiting from it financially and maybe they were just seeing clients in the community for free and those clients weren't having to pay. But if somebody's coming in and paying for this service, I don't understand the can't of of employment. It doesn't actually make sense to me. Um, and I don't think private practices are necessarily ill-intending. Um, you know, and I, I know there are many wonderful ones out there and they're really trying to support these students, but I would love to see a shared responsibility from both employers and 
from the government perhaps in how they are going to navigate this issue because if everyone just keeps putting their hand up and saying, well, it's the government's fault or the government says, well, it's the employers, what, what do we do with that? We're not getting anywhere. So we need to take shared responsibility in this problem. Can, can master students do anything about this situation? I honestly, um, besides perhaps, you know, advocating for it, talking about it more, um, you know, rallying for it, I, I feel stumped with this myself. I'm, I have been trying to talk to um, people who are kind of at the head of organizing placements and things like that. And I, I have definitely been trying to advocate and liaise and and make this a known issue. I am a bit stumped at this point as to what a student can do. And I, I feel like because of that imbalance of power, what I want to see is the people at the top doing something. And I want to put the kind of ball in their court and not make the student feel like this is, you know, like I need to do something um, because I know that the, the balance of power is just, it's, it's completely skewed. And besides rallying about it, besides talking about it, besides, you know, fighting, continuing to fight for this issue, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the student can do about it. What do you think? Yeah, I think continuing to talk about it is a really good step. I think for students, one thing that they can do is I would advocate for causing a fuss. And so I know that we can be really uncomfortable about this and we don't like to stick out, but students, you have course evaluations that are anonymous. I would highly recommend you use them. And so write in that, like, it was a struggle for me to get through my internship when it was not paid. I struggled to get through that placement. So really conveying that to the course coordinators, I think is really vital because if you and 50 other people are saying the same thing, that sends a very clear message that we need to reconsider this. I would also, if you feel safe enough, bring it, raise it directly with your coordinators of the unit that you believe that you are doing tasks that are similar to other people in that organization during your placement. And it would be sensible to be reimbursed for that. And that also if you are undertaking this placement and not permitted to undertake any other employment, then that makes it really difficult for you financially. I know that I will be bringing up some of these things. So I am doing the bridging course for the clinical masters right now. And I am essentially looking at winding down my private practice in order to do these placements. And I think it's going to be way less than what I'm currently earning. And yeah, I'm going to cause a fuss because I've got a mortgage. Absolutely. And I think the fact that we have to make those choices over our own livelihoods versus completing a program like this, just it, it does not sit comfortably with me. It doesn't make any sense. And we're setting our psychologists up really um, not just for burnout, but for financial distress, yep. um, for essentially feeling like I need to sacrifice everything about me down to my livelihood if I want to do this job. And that is not the message we should be sending to psychologists. Yeah, no, I think it should be adequate pay from the start. Like we need sustainable pay to get us through this really difficult career. Um, we're studying lots. We've got people who rely on us, the, the community, the public. It's very important that we're correctly reimbursed. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's like we talk about this a lot of psychologists, don't we? Like when we're working with our clients, I mean, I know I do, this idea that, you know, how do we feel like how do we pour from an empty cup? 
right? And we're sending these psychs out who are dealing with the most vulnerable people in our society and they're not being taken care of. And so if we want them to do their job and do their job well, we need to take care of our psychologists so that they can take care of other people well. 100%. So guys, keep talking about it. If you are dissatisfied with not being paid, remember that apprenticeships, they are paid. There's lots of payment in other industries and we are, we're missing out. Like we're not being paid adequately for the work that we do, which is often, I guess, it's not just we're like pushing papers and doing admin stuff. We are doing the work of psychologists and that work deserves to be paid. Deserves to be paid. And I think you all just deserve to be treated better. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to move on, if I can, Amanda, to we've done internships, we've done masters. Can we talk about registered psychs and maybe the first workplace that they have whilst generally registered? Yeah, I think a question I I often get asked um, is around the contract diverse employment arrangement and what does that look like and maybe what are the kind of pros and cons of each scenario, which might be deviating a little bit from ethical issues, but um, for some, I, I find that it can be a little bit confusing understanding, am I in a genuine contract relationship or is this, you know, genuinely an employment arrangement and really just trying to understand what the difference looks like. So as a contractor, you need to have your own ABN, for example, or maybe an ACN if you did set up a company, but let's say you even just had an ABN and you're a sole trader, you're essentially operating as a business within a business. Um, so they are contracting you work, you're taking a percentage um, of the fee, and that is essentially that relationship. Now, what that means and the benefits of that and what it should look like is that as a contractor, you are allowed to, you, you are entitled to set your own hours, set your own working days, take holidays when you please. You are allowed to dictate what clients you see, when you see them, how much you charge. Um, you can set your own hourly rate. And the thing that really is negotiated is just that percentage fee split. What I see sometimes is uh, people that are hired as contractors, but then it ends up looking a bit like employment. Like yeah. perhaps the, yeah, perhaps the employer is maybe having too much of a say of, well, you need to work these hours these days. No, you need to see these clients, even if that psychologist might not feel comfortable to or has expressed that I don't want to work with this particular presentation or I don't want to see this particular thing or, you know, et cetera. And so be really mindful of that because that is, um, That is, I suppose, essentially looking more like an employment scenario. And that just means that you're getting, you're not really, (laughs) what is it? You're being employed without the benefits of being employed. So you're not getting the security of pay. You're not getting your super pay. You're not getting all the other perks that come with actually being employed, um, but you're being treated like you're employed. So definitely be mindful of that. Um, Being a true contractor means you are your own business within a business. And really the only negotiation is around a percentage split. That is very clear and I completely agree. So listeners, if your employment, if your contracting situation is looking more like an employment relationship, you are missing out on super leave and lots of other perks of being employed. And so it's really important that you are aware of the distinction as well. Amanda did a really great job summarizing. Nice work, Amanda. Thanks, Bronwyn. Yeah. And yeah, it's something that I see all the time, actually, on social media. It's um, it's a real bugbear of mine. Mine too. Uh, really bothers me. And I think like 
I have been a contractor, well, I mean, until recently, because I own my own business now, but um, for the majority of my career, I was a a contractor. And I really enjoyed the benefits of that. And most of the time it was done really well. Most of the workplaces I worked in really respected that. And you were really allowed that flexibility of, well, these are the days I want to work. These are the hours. I want to see these presentations. Um, This is our split. And when it works, it works really well. Um, It's just making sure that it's, it's, going to work for both of you and there's a mutually benefit it's a mutually beneficial relationship because I'm getting all the flexibility and independence I want and you're getting the benefit of not having to have the burden of having an employee (laughs) exactly yeah I was really confused about it until I thought about it like this I'm gonna say it so that listeners might find it helpful but I thought about how I hire an electrician so like if I need an electrician to come to my house I call this firm and they, I talk to their admin people and then they send out one of their electricians. Their electrician is a contractor. So the electrician decides what they charge, when they're going to come and their admin person just sorts out the rest of the things, but they're not telling the electrician, you need to use these tools. You need to do it in this particular way. And we're going to give you the tools as well. They don't give them the tools. They supply their own tools. So when I think of it like that, I'm like, oh, that's super clear to me. It's like, they're not going to give me stuff like the electrician is their own person. I'm my own person. I'm my own business, but they're just sorting out the admin stuff and they're giving the, I guess, the the organizational overhead. That's a great example. Thank you. So now I think, is this would this make sense for my electrician to do this? If not, then I need to be a bit more suspicious about this. Yes, yes, I love that. Really, really good, clear example of it. Yeah. Amanda, is there anything else we need to talk about? I can't think of anything else that is maybe ethically specific, but I would just always say and encourage um, Anyone who's in a position, particularly we know that, again, there's a power imbalance, but if you're in a position where you feel confused and you don't know, is this ethical, is this unethical, what are my rights here, uh, please note that the AAPI, if you are a member, firstly, has some really great resources around this, um, really clear guidelines around what it looks like hiring a provisional psych, and it's been written in a way that is accessible for both the employer and the provisional. It also comes with a nice handy checklist and some things that you can reference to see, okay, you know, what are my rights here as a provisional? And then as the employer, what are some of my responsibilities? So I do recommend that as a wonderful resource. And I would also say to you, again, please feel free to, you know, seek support through external supervisors or, you know, call up your, you know, your peak body like RP and really try and get some support in place if you are unsure. And if you are unsure about is this situation above board or not. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's those RP resources, listeners. And I would add to that, just don't sit there and hope that it will go away or I guess doubt your feelings and be like, meh, it's fine. It's not okay. And it probably won't go away. So try and do something. You can do it. We'll support you. We will support you. Was there anything else that you wanted to tell listeners about, about where to find you, Amanda? Oh, yeah. Um, You can find me. I'm quite active on social media platforms like LinkedIn, um, just under Amanda Moses, my my Facebook page, Amanda Moses Psychology. I also run a private Facebook group for early career psychologists um, where I provide a lot of support to 
provisionals and uh, people doing their masters or people in kind of that first five years of registration. So you're welcome to find me anywhere there um, and my services and products, et cetera, available via my website, which is www.amandamosaspsychology.com.au. Excellent. And we will have all those links in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on, Amanda. Thanks for having me again, Bronwyn. My pleasure. And thank you listeners for listening. I hope this episode has been helpful for you. Catch you next time and have a good one. Bye. Hello, mental workers. This is a shout out to my patrons. Patrons are listeners who have joined the Patreon for $2 a month. I am so appreciative of Jill, Emily, Christy, and Nathan, who have become recent patrons. And thanks to everyone else who is also a patron. I really appreciate you. All funds go directly back into the podcast and making it great for you. As a patron, they also get a monthly behind-the-scenes update. This is often what episodes are coming up and what's happening with the podcast. They also get priority requests, and so they can email me and I'll be put to the top of the list, which is fantastic. You also get the knowledge that you're contributing to an awesome community. If you would like to become a Patreon, you can sign up at patreon.com slash mentalworkpodcast. The link is in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks so much. Bye.